This episode is brought to you by Lightpoint, of which I'm the principal engineer. Lightpoint provides the collision reconstruction community with data and education to facilitate and elevate analyses. Our most popular product is our exemplar vehicle point clouds. If you've ever needed to track down an exemplar, you know it takes hours of searching for the perfect model, awkward conversations with dealers, and usually some cash to grease the wheels. Then back at the office, it takes a couple more hours to stitch and clean the data, and that eats up manpower and adds a lot to the bottom line of your invoice. Save yourself the headache so you can spend more time on what really matters, the analysis. Lightpoint has already measured most vehicles with a top-of-the-line scanner, like his RTC360, so no one in the community has to do it again. The exemplar point cloud is delivered in PTS format, includes the interior, and is fully cleaned and ready to drop into your favorite programs, such as Cloud Compare, 3DS Max, Rhino, Virtual Crash, PC Crash, among others. Head over to lightpointdata.com slash datadriven to check out the database and receive 15% off your first order. That's lightpointdata.com slash datadriven. All right, my guest today is Alan Moore. Uh, Mr. Moore is a mechanical engineer and principal of AB Moore Forensic Engineering. He specializes in vehicle accident reconstruction, vehicle design analysis, and mechanical engineering consulting. He is the developer and instructor of SAE's course, Accident Reconstruction, the Autonomous Vehicle, and ADAS. Mr. Moore holds a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from Michigan State University and an MBA from the University of Florida. He's a licensed professional engineer, a board-certified forensic engineer, and an ACTAR-accredited accident reconstructionist. His experience includes nearly three decades of accident reconstruction in automotive engineering, having previously worked as a design engineer at Ford. Alan also serves as a high-performance driving coach for aspiring race car drivers through the Porsche Club of America. Uh, thanks for coming, Alan. That sounds fun, the instructing. <laughs> yeah, that is good fun. Scary sometimes, but good fun. Yeah. When you're not the one with the steering wheel, I imagine that it's, uh, yeah, it could be, it could be tough, like teaching a, a 16-year-old how to drive or something at times. Uh, almost more scary sometimes, but I've got a pretty high risk tolerance, so that helps. <laughs> okay. You're autonomous expert. That this is what we're going to be talking about mostly today. You teach SAE's course. I've heard great things. One of my engineers has been there, and I'm hoping to take it soon. So I was wondering, as an icebreaker, what car are you currently driving? And I'm hoping you're going to tell me it's a 1965 Mustang or something like that. Nope, nope. It is not. It is not. <laughs> okay. Tesla, a, a Tesla then? I have a Tesla, a Model S. Yep. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I had the Model Y for a really long time and enjoyed it. Got rid of it when I uh, sent my kids to private school, and I'm hoping to uh, maybe pick up another one before too long. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Well, you might want to wait until they figure out how to keep the steering wheels on because they just had a recall on the Model Y for the steering wheels falling off. <laughs> it seems like an important component on a vehicle that is not level five. You'd think so. You'd think so, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I thought we'd kind of start there with some of the definitions because level five, you know, you and I know what that means, but probably a, lo a lot of other people don't. Um, but even before we get to kind of the levels of autonomy, so to speak, uh, let's talk about ADAS in general, because that seems to be more popular right now. And it's kind of a stepping stone to things like level five. Um, what is ADAS and, and how's it going so far? Yeah, so uh, ADAS is uh, the acronym for Advanced Driver Assistance Systems. 
Once we all got used to calling it ADAS, SAE changed their terminology to just be ADS or Advanced Driving Systems. Uh, I'm set with ADAS. My class is named. I'm just sticking with ADAS. So, but the idea of ADAS is it's anything that helps the driver monitor the roadway and control the vehicle. And that can either be a full-time thing like a self-driving system, but it's much more common to have it as an intervention system, like a collision avoidance system. So that's roughly what ADAS is. Yeah. And I, I remember I was, I have a 2018 Toyota Tundra now that I drive. And when I was going to buy that Toyota was like, Hey, by 20, I think 2020, they said every vehicle that we pump out is going to have some sort of, uh, autonomous braking system, collision avoidance, um, lane monitoring and things like that. Um, so the majority of cars, it seems even, you know, the medium level cars that are being produced today have some sort of ADAS. I don't want to say ADAS system, but some sort of ADAS, I guess, is the right way to say it. Um, yeah, that's absolutely correct. So of passenger vehicles in the U.S., uh, more than 90% of the vehicles sold today have some ADAS system on them, usually collision warning and, uh, and brake assist. Uh, Toyota was the first to lead that charge. In 2019, 90% of their vehicles uh, were equipped with that. So they were the first to really put it across their fleet. So another way to look at that is if you think of the adoption curve of how quickly vehicles come into the, into the fleet, it's fairly slow. But by my math and uh, research done by others, about next year, I anticipate that half of our two vehicle crashes will have some type of ADAS componentry involved. So in half of our two vehicle crashes, someone's going to ask, hey, why didn't this work or did it work? So it's, you know, I started teaching this class uh, four or five years ago, and then it was kind of who cares? We're not seeing this. It's on a couple of cars. Well, all of a sudden now it really matters. I remember hearing you when you started the class say, hey, let's get ahead of the curve. If we're just learning about it now, are we still getting ahead of the curve or are we kind of catching up? What's your take on that? Um, yeah. So if you haven't heard of it until today, you've got some catching up to do. You know, I've been talking about this now for uh, about four or five years. So, I, you know, people have kind of heard bits and pieces of what I have to say on the subject. But uh, yeah, so I expect, you know, your clients today are going to be asking you what this stuff is and why it worked or didn't work. And, you know, one of my nightmares as a forensic expert is to be asked something I don't know about. Right. I always want to know more about it before I hear from a client that they need to know what it is. So uh, yeah, this is uh, this is kind of a last chance to get up to speed on this, definitely. Yeah, and I think that fear is what makes some of the good people really good in recon is, is you know, sitting in the chair and not knowing the answer to a very important question keeps us up at night and makes us do the extra legwork. So yes. uh, we, I definitely appreciate having people like you around that are diving into it to kind of lead lead the charge and help us understand what we need to know about these systems so that we can do what we need to do. Well, and, and there's two sides to it for an expert. One is understanding what it all is. And part two is deciding what to do about it. Just because you know what ADAS is doesn't mean you need to go get a master's degree in it and know everything about it. You just need to decide for your practice how much you're going to work with it. And at what point you're gonna tell your client, hey, we need to hand this off to someone else. We need to bring in someone who specializes in it. But I think the option of putting your head in the sand and not learning anything about it, it just isn't a viable option. So at what point or to what level do you want to learn about this field is the question that everybody kind of has to answer for themselves. Yeah, that's and that's a really potent question. Uh, I think I, uh, in talking a little bit about 
how much each reconstructionist needs to know. And it actually reminds me a little bit of kind of when the CDR tool became available. And I remember a lot of reconstructionists jumping back and being like, well, that's too much for me to handle. I'm not going to do that. And it's like, well, you, you have to, if you want to be a relevant reconstructionist. And it seems to me there's some uh, analogy here between autonomous vehicles and EDR where you, you have to know enough, at least. You might not have to know everything. You don't have to be Alan Moore, but you have to have some foundation. Yeah, and, and I've got a pretty good kind of minimum criteria for that. I think everybody in our field uh, needs to know what ADAS is, what the different pieces of it are, and they need to know how to figure out if it's on a vehicle. So if someone calls and says, hey, does this VW have collision warning? Does it have pedestrian detection? Does it have lane departure warning? We should all be able to answer that question. Um, now, the next question of should that have prevented this crash, that can go into the weeds pretty quickly sometimes. So I would expect a lot of people are going to say, you know what, that's not my thing. But I know these other people are really good at that. Let's call one of them. Um, and I think that's a, a good place to draw the line is uh, what are all the technologies? Was it equipped on this vehicle? And then from there, you can kind of decide how much you want to get involved with. You know, one way to think of it is like human factors. We all need to understand that reaction times exist. A lot of the time, it's 1 to 1.8 seconds, roughly, depending on the scenario. Um, but from there, it can go into the weeds really, really quickly. And I think all of us get to a point where we've got to refer it to a human factors expert, right? And so I think that ADAS is, is kind of the same way. You, you definitely have to know the basics. What is it? And was it equipped or the two big ones? Yeah, I think on a lot of these forensic cases, the way that I picture it in my head is the accident reconstructionist is the quarterback. They're the one taking the call from the client. They're the one who is often figuring out what the landscape of the case is. And then they're figuring out what other experts should potentially be brought on board and kind of guiding the client to figure out who, who to hire and who to help. And this seems no different. You know, it's funny you say that. I do the same. I've never thought of it as quarterbacking, but anytime there's another engineer, another expert who is better at something, or even if they're just less expensive than me, I'll try to farm out a piece of the work. You know, um, speed analysis from video. If it's at all complex, I farm it out to Adam Savansky. And I still do it myself, but his method is, is excellent. So I, I want his method to be on my cases. And, um, you know, lots of things like that. I'll farm out to other people if they're better or less expensive. And then I'll still do what I always do, though, is I still do the basics of it myself. So if someone asks, I can say, yes, I did it. And I had this other method done as well. I've got two ways of looking at it. And in our field, I think it's always good to do things more than one way. You know, how did you calculate speed? Oh, I used the crush method. Now we're going to have an hour discussion in my deposition on the strengths and weaknesses of the crush method. But if I use the crush method and EDR and speed from a video analysis, all of a sudden the attorney's going to give up asking me about speed because there's no way to argue all three. So multiple yeah. methods, I think, is, is good. I totally agree. And that's, that's exactly how I run things, especially on motorcycle crashes where the impact speed uh, determination methods uh, end up with a pretty notable range. But if I can do three of them or four of them and they're all saying the same thing, then I can walk in a lot more confidently. And like you said, the cross-examination is inversely proportional to the number of methodologies you're using to, to develop yes. speed. That's absolutely that's the, true. That's yeah, the Moore equation, I think that's called. <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah. it's, a, it's a new Moore's law. I got to say, motorcycle speed determination has gotten a lot easier since the last Rex conference and the paper you guys did on it. 
I use that. I, I made Excel calculations based on that. I use that all the time. I think that is just wonderful. It gives oh, us a point two based on real world modern data. I think that's great. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad you're finding it useful. I definitely appreciate that. And uh, yeah, uh, I'm. I'm looking. We're gonna. And then simulation is the other big one for motorcycle speed determination. And back to like one of your sentiments that I've heard you speak about before, and we were talking about a little bit before uh, recording is the omnipresence of electronic data and how important that is to us. And uh, the reason that's huge in motorcycle recon now is we get the collision pulse on the target vehicle most of the time. And if we get that collision pulse and we know how much the motorcycle and the rider weighs, then we're in good shape for estimating impact speed. And now um, I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit. So uh, I do want to talk about that and that electronic data in the CDR report, you know, what you get from Bosch and what you might get from vehicle control history and other things. But I, let's take a step back real quick and just kind of define the levels of autonomy. It's a spectrum and we don't necessarily need to go through each one, but there's, there's five levels, kind of six, depending if you count zero as a level, which is absolutely nothing. Um, but uh, yeah, if you could kind of walk us through those levels briefly. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I actually like to start at the top. So levels four and five, for most of us, are almost the same. The difference is small. Levels four and five, you don't need a steering wheel, fully self-driving, not Tesla self-driving, but completely autonomous. Um, and uh, the thing about levels four and five is if anything goes wrong, the vehicle finds its minimal risk condition. It finds its own safe place, which generally means pulling over and stopping. That's a key thing about levels four and five. You don't need a steering wheel. You don't need to be awake or sober. Um, and if anything goes wrong, the car will pull over on itself by itself and stop. Level three is partway there. Level three in, um, let's see, who just came out with a level three vehicle? Oh, uh, Mercedes Drive Pilot, yeah. Thank you. Yep, I just saw the, uh, the article on that. So that right now is the only level three vehicle available in, in the US. Level three says you can read a book, put on makeup, read the news on your phone, will drive for you. But if anything goes wrong, you've got to take over within about 10 seconds or so. So that's kind of the idea of level three. If anything goes wrong, it's your fault. <laughs> it's kind of one way to look at it. The driver has to be able to take over. Uh, if anything goes wrong and the vehicle has a problem, it's going to stop in the lane with the hazard lights on. And that's not a minimal risk condition. That's requiring the driver uh, you know, to take over. So what most of us think of as self-driving or ADAS on cars we can actually drive is level two. That's where Tesla Autopilot and, uh, you know, GM Super Cruise are, where it can uh, monitor speed of traffic ahead of us, monitor lane position, and it can control our steering and speed on a single roadway. So it can take away the steering and the speed control, which when you think about it, is a pretty major portion of the effort of driving. And it's actually really relaxing when you take that away from the driver. The problem is it's really relaxing. So what do people do? They either fall asleep or they get distracted by something else. So we're going to give you this great technology, but tell you, oh, wait, no, 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 no. You've got to stay up and pay attention. You've got to keep your eyes on the road and your hand on the steering wheel. So it's kind of like we give this to a driver, but then we take it back. And if anything goes wrong, what does a manufacturer do? Blame the driver for not paying attention. So that's that's where level two is. And then level one is um, uh, level one is either steering control or speed control. Uh, basically, that would be like an adaptive cruise control without steering assist. 
So that's kind of, that's kind of a rough breakdown of the of the levels. Yeah, and I, I the model Y I had was obviously uh, level two, and I found myself falling exactly into that trap that that you were talking about. I when I first got it, I was really apprehensive and putting it into that autonomous mode uh, where it's controlling steering and throttles and brakes. I was like, okay, I was just super vigilant and looking out for anything that would uh, make the system behave inappropriately. And then eventually I'm driving to Arizona and I'm on 10 and it's super straight and there's nothing to do. And I just double click the stock and then try to fire off some text or change the song or something like that. And then while I had it, you know, they're over the air updates, as you know, then they started monitoring the driver and they're like watching your eyes and telling you, Hey, you're not paying attention to the road. So uh, we're going to turn off the autopilot system, quote unquote. And then I found myself frustrated. I'm like, come on, you, you should be able to handle this. Let me take a little bit of a break here and do what I need to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what's neat about that. So they're using a camera to monitor the driver, but they're not just monitoring the driver. Believe it or not, they're watching your cell phone. So when you have your cell phone in the view of the camera, the camera is um, estimating the angle of it based on its reflection and whether you're looking at it or not. So if I'm holding my cell phone like this, I'll get a warning pretty quickly in a Tesla. If I'm holding my cell phone like this to show it to the passenger, it won't respond as quickly. It's pretty impressive what they're doing with that driver monitoring. But driver monitoring matters a lot because people either get relaxed and distracted, or they use the ADAS system as a benefit to allow them to do something else, a secondary task is what we call it. But in a level two system, you can't do a secondary task. You've gotta be watching the road ahead. And you know, when you think about how much training airplane pilots get to use their autopilot, which is much simpler than a level two system. And we give this to consumers and say, have at it, out on the road you go. You know, that's, you know, obviously issues are gonna happen. There's no, there's no question about that. Yeah, read the owner's manual. You'll figure it out. Um, yeah, that that is a little a little wild. It, so, a Mercedes system that uh, just came out that Drive Pilot are they using lidar? Do we need lidar to get to level three at this stage of the game? It's a good way to do it. Yeah. So the the Mercedes, from what I read, I haven't been in one yet. It's using uh, cameras, radar, and lidar, which is the most conservative way to do it. But the problem with it, and when Audi tried to release a level three system in the U.S. Uh, about four years ago, three or four years ago, and they ran into the same problem. To you know, the, the risk for the manufacturer is so high to have a level three system that they really have to box in its use. So like Audi's system, the Mercedes system says uh, limited access expressway uh, with guardrails, with a lead vehicle that your car can follow less than 40 miles per hour. My 10 year old could do that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I had a really long drive on Saturday in traffic where that actually would have been useful. But my Tesla does that already. Uh, you know, I just have to stay awake. Right. But so the environment where that works, it's just so limited that it's not gonna provide a whole lot of safety benefit. Now, as time goes on and they get some more fleet learning, they're going, as I understand, they're gonna raise the maximum speed of it. And once they get up to say 65 or 70 miles an hour, uh, you know, then it has real utility. Uh, but for now it's use is pretty limited. But the, the GM Super Cruise uh, is somewhat similar, although it doesn't have that speed limit on it. Uh, still, the use of it's pretty, pretty limited, um, but because of that, you won't see an article in the news about a Cadillac 
causing some mayhem with the supercruise enabled, like you see with Tesla's. So, you know, one manufacturer is uh, much more risk tolerant in where they allow their system to be used. So more mayhem occurs. Another manufacturer is extremely conservative in where they allow the system to be used. So not much mayhem happens, but drivers don't get the safety benefit of it either, you know, which is better, right? 10 years from now, we'll look back in hindsight, it'll be obvious. Uh, right now, uh, the answer is not as obvious as some people might think it is. Yeah. And so Tesla has been one of those companies that's really vocal about trying to Pro, uh, progress without the need for LIDAR, without implementing LIDAR. And I think for somewhat obvious reasons, it's it's ugly, it's expensive, it's vulnerable, it's, it's sticking out on the end of the car and can be thrashed by a million different things. But what are the sensor groups that all the, the OEMs at this point are using just to kind of help people get an understanding of what sensors are driving these autonomous systems? So for, for the vehicles we have on the road today, for ADAS systems and vehicles that we drive, it's cameras and, uh, uh, and radar. That's basically all we're using. For fully autonomous development vehicles or the Mercedes Level 3 vehicle that came out, they're almost all using cameras, radar, and LIDAR. And uh, so that's, that makes it easy to find a fully autonomous test vehicle. There's a bunch of junk on the roof because they have, you know, LIDAR units all the way around it. Um, yeah, so, you know, how that's going to work out for Tesla, we'll see, you know, for any technical person to, uh, you know, vocally state, I am not going to use this technology today, three years from now, that, that decision should be reconsidered, right? Is that decision being reconsidered as technology changes? I'm not so sure. But when I see Audi and Mercedes and uh, even, I believe, Bentley, integrate LIDAR into the grill where, you know, it's a limited um, uh, 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 view width, but it's still, it's still LIDAR, still useful. Um, and the cost has come down so much, why not use it? You know, by the time you put all the technology and the cost into it, why not use a tool that's providing beneficial info? So we'll yeah, see. that makes me think of the iPhones now where this little sensor here is LIDAR. And this is, I'm pretty fair, uh, sure it's manufactured by Sony and they just had an announcement that they're coming out with a new longer range LIDAR device. So this is not like you and I are used to using a terrestrial scanner with uh, you know, a spinning mirror or something like that with this big bulky thing. If you could put 10 of these around the car and it costs you $1,000 or $500 to install them, uh, that information is is huge. Photogrammetry is obviously extremely powerful, but seems uh, like it, it can't handle everything. It ben obviously, there's a benefit from adding LIDAR in uh, that synergy. Right, right. Yeah, a real limit of photogrammetry in a vehicle is, um, and I've not seen it yet because our roads are flat, but Tesla's full self-driving system um, has, in some models, it has a stereo camera system forward, but the side views are all basically monocular. Well, if you're trying to judge traffic and there are uh, slopes, you know, big hills like San Francisco style hills, um, its distance estimation can't be as accurate. And I've been curious how they handle that. And I've not messed with it. We don't have hills in Florida, so I don't get to see it. Um, but yeah, I mean, that'd be, that would be one of many applications where LIDAR would be better. You know, you don't have that limitation with LIDAR. And so not only is the cost of the sensor uh, dropping rapidly, but the uh, computing power needed to uh, analyze the data is uh, cheaper, but also our 
uh, techniques for processing this data have advanced so rapidly. I mean, who would have thought that we could do a 3D LiDAR scan and register it on a cell phone? Even five years ago, who would have thought we could do that with LiDAR, you know, and, and now we all do it. So yeah, this stuff advances at such a rapid rate. It's, it's a race to keep up with it. Yeah, it really is. And and speaking of the sensors, so the uh, Waymo has all of the sensors essentially on board. Looking at those vehicles, uh, I think they're in LA and San Francisco now, where they're available for like you could just order it like it's a, a Lyft or an Uber, and this in driverless Arizona, car. Flagstaff, I think. Okay, um, so that that's full level five, then, right? There's not even a driver in the seat. Um, technically, it's probably level four. So the difference between level four and level five is level five can work in all environments. So you could have a whiteout blizzard snowstorm or a, a, a heavy rainstorm with flooding, I guess, and it'll still work. Well, that's not very realistic. So level four is really the highest we're going to see. But So those are uh, most likely level four systems. Okay, that makes sense. And uh, uh, that does sound completely unrealistic because even I have a hard time driving in a whiteout storm. I exactly. used to live in Massachusetts. I had that skill at one point, but now that I'm in Southern California, even the rain <laughs> terrifies me. Um, <laughs> So speaking of the Apple, I mean, they've got obviously this cool array of cameras they're doing photogrammetry with. They have the LiDAR they're using for augmented reality and things. Where are they in all of this? You don't really hear, at least me as a layman, I don't hear much about Apple in this game. Um, where are they at and what do you expect their role might be in the future? Um, I don't expect anything from Apple at this point. They had an autonomous vehicle division for a while working on something. It was very vague. Um, but I think a good way to estimate what they were doing is by looking at a company called comma.ai. And that's kind of a neat story. Comma.ai is a company started by uh, George Hotz, H-O-T-Z. He's one of these just you know brilliant masterminds. I think he was the first person to hack an iPhone and he was, I believe he was a teenager when he did it. He's, he's a very, very sharp guy. His idea is, I don't want to have to buy a car to get this technology. I want to have a device that I can plug into a car that gives me the technology I want. So basically, he came up with a device. It's called the Kama. And you literally can buy this today and put it in. I think you can put it in your Tundra, actually. Um, and it interfaces with the CAN network, <laughs> takes control of throttle, brakes, steering, camera, well, not camera, uh, but radar, and gives you a level two system that's pretty similar to a Tesla autopilot from, say, four or five years ago. The beauty of that is it solves the rental car problem. When I fly to another city, get some other car, it's going to have some mix. You know, why is this Nissan beeping at me and telling me the radar is obstructed? You know, why in the Chevy Tahoe is one seat cushion vibrating at me? I, I don't know what all this stuff is, but if I can take my cell phone or George Hotz's comma three, plug it into the car, now I have the interface I expect, the features I expect, the performance I expect in any given car. That's what comma.ai has developed. And I think Apple saw the same and wanted to develop and realize one, it's very complex and two, this other company is already doing it. Um, and, but I think that's where Apple is going because it, to me, it doesn't make sense for Apple to get into the business of making cars. You know, it, by today's standards, the car part is pretty easy compared to a lot of the other technology that has to go into it. Yeah, that, that technology, I mean, it's like supercomputing power on board, it seems, correct me if I'm wrong there, but then you need to also be developing machine learning tools, artificial intelligence, potential vehicle to vehicle communication, potential vehicle to infrastructure communication. 
there's just a whole plethora of problems. And like you said, the car, we've, we mastered that a long time ago. Granted, they keep getting a little bit better and a little bit faster and a little bit smoother, but the rest of that stuff is, is pretty darn new. Oh, yeah. I mean, think about how much tires or automotive paint or passive restraints have improved in the last 20 years. Yeah, they have. They've gotten better. But think about how much image classification, which autonomy relies greatly on. I mean, that almost didn't exist 20 years ago. And now we can do it on our cell phones. You know, I mean, you know, traffic signals can do it now. So there's been so many advances in those areas that, that it you know, overshadows the rest of the automobile from an ADAS standpoint. Yeah. And so speaking of V2V and V2I, V2V being vehicle-to-vehicle communication and V2I being vehicle-to-infrastructure communication to facilitate autonomous driving, where are we on that now? And where do you see that going? Is it necessary to continue along this path and get to level four or five? Yeah. So I call it V2X. So vehicle to anything communication. It's V2V and V2I and, and so on. Um, I That's not really my specialty, but I think it's kind of the Wild West right now. You know, everybody was focusing on uh, DSRC, which is a short range radio and uh, Cadillac and Mercedes actually put them into production. But since they were the only vehicles on the road using it, it you know, it wasn't that helpful, right? It's like uh, when telephones first came out, if you were the only one with a telephone, it didn't do you much good. Um, well, since then, it appears that 5G is going to replace DSRC. So now all the companies developing this technology have to you know, move everything to 5G. And it, there's a lot of promise with it in crash reduction, uh, but there's a lot of challenges to it as well. And I really don't have a good feel for where that's gonna end up. I mean, there's some really neat Jetson style scenarios where I'm approaching a green light at night, another car is gonna run a red light and either that car or the traffic signal make an assessment that he's not gonna stop at that red. And they warn me to stop on my green light to avoid an impact. I mean, that's you know, think of what that could do to reduce crashes. Um, but the moving parts that have to fit together to make that happen are, are difficult. Another one is in a crowded city, a pedestrian's about to step off the sidewalk into the roadway. If something can warn me before the pedestrian le even leaves the sidewalk, I might be able, able to avoid that impact. The technology is all there to do that, but just to get all the pieces in place and to get the timing to work out um, is really difficult. So I don't know um, where that's going to end up. Uh, you know, right now we can interface traffic signals with vehicles that has some minor benefit. We can interface vehicles with infrastructure like OnStar, some pretty major benefits with that. There's been some real, you know, hero stories with that. But yeah, where that's going to end up, I don't know. But the, the biggest problem I want it to solve is the uh, loss of visibility problem. Um, say uh, we get this in Florida where you have a, a combination of fog and smoke that happens on an expressway and people don't understand how debilitating that is, but witnesses describe it as having a white blanket across your windshield. So imagine you're driving at 70 miles an hour and literally somebody puts a white blanket on your windshield. Uh, you know, what do you do, right? Do you slam on the brakes? Well, you might get rear-ended. Do you keep going? You're probably going to hit someone else who stopped. But if V2X communication can warn everybody, hey, slow down, there's limited visibility ahead. We could prevent, uh, you know, these 50 car pileups that we hear about sometimes. And that would be a, a major benefit of V2X, in my opinion. 
Yeah, and it seems like you're saying there's a lot of moving parts there to bring that all together. And there would have to just be this monumental cooperation between OEMs and governments and municipalities. Um, yeah, so with the obstructed visibility, that's one neat application because you don't need everybody involved. Let's say one out of five vehicles gets the message, you know, slow down ahead. Uh, you know, Waze could do that today, right, if it, if it responds quickly enough. If you get one out of five vehicles slowing down, as soon as you start seeing brake lights, most drivers slow down anyway. And then you can get the whole convoy of traffic slowed down before they get into the fog bank. So th that's a great application of it because not everybody has to have it. Whereas the scenario of, you know, a pedestrian steps into the road, how do you warn the driver soon enough that those two parties have to have all the equipment and engage to each other? That's pretty unlikely. So that's why I like the obstructed roadway scenario. Yeah, that, that the, it sounds like you said it's totally totally feasible, and we're already kind of doing it in some regard. I, driving down, I was in a rental car the other day, and uh, I don't even remember where I was somewhere near San Francisco, and I got you know yeah warning pothole on the road, a hundred yards later warning there's a some object in the road, and it helps put me on alert and just make sure that I'm paying attention so I don't crash into something. Um, yeah, so there you go. That's V2X. I mean, that's it working. And uh, that might have, that was probably through your cell phone, not even through the vehicle, I'm guessing. That's right. Yeah. And, and the, it helps me also avoid police too. So if I'm going 85 and a 65, <laughs> well, that's I, can, true. I can just slow down a little bit. Not that I ever would go 85 and a 65. That's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> the, and so the, the cooperation, I wonder if it's good. This is just me kind of spitballing. Like, are we going to need that cooperation among manufacturers to get to you know, first of all, are we ever going to get to level four where like the majority of the vehicles on the road are level four? And if we do, is it going to require some cooperation between the manufacturers? Are they going to have to get together and say, this is a problem too big to solve on our own. Why would we try to solve it on our own? We have talented engineers at all of these places. Let's get together and solve the problem. I mean, I think that ADAS is the biggest example of collaboration in the auto industry ever throughout history. You know, the amount of standardization that's been going on, uh, I find really impressive, especially since most of it is happening without regulation. You know, the federal regulators have intentionally stayed out of this as much as they, as they can to encourage innovation. You know, as soon as you put a rule on it, like part 563, as soon as you put a rule on it, you know, you standardize something which is good, but you limit a lot of other things that could be better. Um, and so, yeah, we do have a lot of collaboration going on. And Collaboration is good for things like V2X. It can't work at all otherwise. But just like drivers need to be able to operate as independent agents, cars need to be able to operate as independent agents. What if you don't have a cell connection? What if you don't have an internet connection? You know, will your car stop on the side of the road? You know, of course you want it to keep going. So um, the, the biggest question in my mind is to get to level four, what do we need from the roads? Because right now we have level four vehicles. I mean, that technology is out there, but it depends on um, good operators, as we'll call them. So trained operators somewhere in the mix. Um, and, and that's just gonna be a challenge no matter how we look at it. But it also requires good roads. And in my class, a lot of the accidents I show, the roadway was a contributor. Not that the road had to be designed 
to allow level four driving, but quality of lane markings is a great example, right? If you have poor quality lane markings, uh, your level two vehicle won't drive as well. And you can go state by state and look at differences in roadway maintenance and similar differences in level two performance just based on lane markings. So yeah, what will it take to get to level four? It's probably gonna take some level of dedicated roadways. You know, we don't need it now because it's small companies doing development on it. But by the time we release it to the mass public, I would not be surprised if we end up with some level of dedicated roadways for it. Yeah, and that was one thing that I was always really careful of when I was uh, driving around the Tesla and I double click the stock and I'm driving along in my quote unquote autopilot. Anytime I saw funky road markings or the sun was potentially in a position where it might limit the contrast between the lane lines and the roadway itself, then I would either keep a sharp eye on things or just take it off. And there, you know, as an operator of a level two vehicle, I think it's really important to understand the limitations of the machine. Like you say, we don't get any training on that. That's something that you and I might have some idea about, but, uh, you know, a regular soccer mom is probably not going to understand exactly what the sensors are looking for. So it becomes uh, a little bit, uh, cumbersome. Well, in, in that cumbersome area is where we live. So when a level two system works fine, we never hear about it. As Jeff Mutart says, everybody goes home and nothing happens. When a system reaches a limitation, that's when we get called and asked, you know, what happened? Why didn't this work, right? And uh, so, yeah, a lot of ADAS involved crashes uh, have an ADAS system limitation. A great example is a pedestrian impact at night. Uh, right now, very few manufacturer systems have any ability to handle a pedestrian impact at night or warn the driver and avoid it. Uh, so that's a simple limitation. But in you know bright daylight with a you know brightly lit pedestrian using very clear biofidelic motion, you know we see the legs moving. Uh, most cars made today, sold today, are amazing at their ability to at least warn the driver, if not brake, to avoid that pedestrian at you know at certain speeds. Yeah. And, and one thing that I found interesting as I was prepping for this podcast, and maybe you can answer this and maybe you can't, but the corroboration of a fleet. So say all Tesla's out there, they are monitoring a bunch of simu uh, situations. And then when they see something noteworthy, I don't know, they're sending that information back to the mothership and it's helping to inform the development, the further development of their system via machine learning. That's that's the way I understand it as somewhat of a layman. Is is that accurate? And if so, is there anybody else doing that too? Uh, it, it's accurate. And there, I actually have some really cool examples of that in use. And I'm not sure if any other manufacturer is doing that. I'm not sure if any other manufacturer has the capability of doing that right now, but Tesla excels in that. There have been points in time where every Tesla on the road was running autopilot in a shadow mode, where it's kind of running a, a simulation on real-time data and reporting back to Tesla issues that came up. But I have two really neat examples of that in use. So when Tesla was working on their full self-driving system, there's one scenario they ran into where you, I've never seen it before, but you have a stop sign Below it, it says, except for right turns. So you have to stop unless you're going to turn right. So I think the right turn is like a, you know, kind of a separate lane almost. 
So for them to figure out how to handle that, they needed one, a bunch of images of stop except for right turn so they could train their image classifier. And then two, they had to have a bunch of examples of how to handle it. So they basically had not every, but most Teslas on the road start looking for that sign. And now Tesla has the largest database in the world of images of signs that say stop except for right turn. And once they had that, then they could, you know, train their models on what to do in that scenario. But another example is just in regards to the performance of collision warning and automatic braking. You know, how often does it work? How well does it work? We get called when it didn't work, when a crash happened and someone says, hey, why didn't, why didn't my automatic, automatic braking stop this crash? Well, Tesla gets data on uh, near misses, events that didn't happen. And according to Andre Karpathy, the former head of their autonomy division, uh, Tesla's prevent more than hundreds per day of pedestrian crashes, more than hundreds per day. We never hear about them, but the system triggers and either warns the driver or autonomously breaks. So, you know, given that a lot of times we get called when it doesn't prevent the crash, it's really useful to know that it did. In fact, a major trucking company has asked me, how come we're having all these crashes? We spent all this money on this technology. Why are we still having these crashes? Well, thankfully the system that they have in place allows us to see other events that it did prevent. I can go in there and say, here's our crash, but here's the last nine events it did prevent. Let's look at those and get an idea of how well the system actually worked. Because when everybody goes home, we don't hear about it, but that's a success for ADAS if it was involved. Yeah, exactly. We're cherry picking what we're looking at um, to a degree. And that brings up a really good point. Uh, and I think I've heard you talk about this elsewhere before. Pedestrian impacts from 2020 to 2021 went up 13%. And it was some big numbers, like 12,000 more fatalities or something like that. I don't know if that's the exact number, but it, the, the delta is indeed 13%. And that is with the advent and the assistance of all these advanced systems. So imagine what would that would look like without it. And I talked a little bit about this with Mutart. I'd love to get your take as well. And I said, Jeff, why do we have this increase when we have these better vehicles? And he said, one thing that you have to consider, Lou, is these pedestrians are all on their phone now. So not only do you have a distracted driver at times, you have a distracted walker and they're pegging each other. And if we didn't have the autonomous systems, this is, seems to be the take, but uh, uh, I am not the expert. Uh, if we didn't have the autonomous systems, that 13% would be dramatically higher. Oh, absolutely. I think it would. There was a great... Um... I think it was actually an insurance company ad, but it might have been just a you know a public safety message. And, and the message was, if they can't walk while texting, what makes you think you can drive while texting? And it showed people trying to walk around a city while texting, and they'd walk into stop signs, they'd fall off ledges, they'd fall downstairs, do all sorts of crazy things just trying to walk. And yeah, Jeff makes a good point. So now we have both both parties distracted. In pedestrians, uh, you know, they can be even more focused. Their their gaze time at their phone can be longer than a driver. Uh, so I could definitely see that. But uh, I think of it as, as two steps forward, one step back. So we have all this great technology to prevent crashes, but then we have all these drivers uh, doing secondary tasks, right? We don't know what it is after the crash, but a secondary task is usually, uh, you know, something on their phone. So it's like, you know, one technology is making driving safer, the other is making it less safe, and they almost balance out, which is kind of unfortunate. 
So, and then when you give a driver a level two system, so many drivers think, hey, great, this is my time to read the news. I can read a book. I can do whatever I want. They don't even understand the message that, no, that's not what level two is. Level two is, you know, keep looking ahead. You're still watching the roadway. Yeah, yeah, we got so close. You know, we got, and hopefully we even that out. And I, I don't know how, I don't think anybody does or else it'd already be done, but to prevent drivers from that secondary task, from that distraction, it's, it's a, it's a obviously some sort of addiction. And we all feel like we, I mean, obviously you just drive down the highway here in Southern California. I suspect it's true where you are as well. Just take a random peek at the guy next to you. And the odds of them being on their phone are like 25 to 50%, at least like most of the time when I look over somebody's on their phone, I'm just like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with an ADAS system, there's two ways to try to prevent that. Uh, one, the simplest way is looking at steering wheel torque. If you can measure some torque on the steering wheel, that suggests there's a hand on it attached to a person who's awake and that maybe then they're paying attention. But obviously that's a poor proxy for driver distraction, right? The best way to do it is with a driver facing camera where you can watch the driver's eyes and uh, with some cars actually watch the angle. Um, of the cell phone. But there's a third thing I've noticed too, that I've noticed in Tesla's, I don't know if other manufacturers do this, but is an attempt to issue warnings based on hazard level. So for example, on a straight flat expressway with no other traffic around, um, an autopilot or full self-driving system is more tolerant of lapses of distraction. But if you're approaching a traffic light at high speed or um, a railroad crossing or a change from a divided highway to a, a non-divided highway, I've noticed autopilot tends to be a lot more um, uh, particular about the driver's attention level because the, the risk is higher, right? That, you know, the, the risk is higher in those environments. So yeah, that's maybe I'd love that. Yeah. And then uh, Ford is really good at trying to measure driver drowsiness using only steering wheel torque, which is a neat thing. So if some Fords uh, anticipate that a driver is getting uh, drowsy or lazy or sleepy, you'll get this uh, coffee cup warning on the dash saying, hey, you might want to take a break. You know, so there's things like that, that that the technology in a car can do to help. But it's still kind of a battle between improving safety and letting drivers be more distracted. And that battle is going to continue until we get to at least level three, you know, in the majority of vehicles. And that's, that's a good ways out from here. Yeah, it does seem to be. And that brings up a, 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 an interesting concept, which is new to me. Um, this idea, you've probably already thought about it, but that maybe these advanced driver systems, one of the most beneficial things they can do is just tell the driver, hey, knock it off. Like, stop looking at your phone. I see you looking at your phone. And I, I guess they don't want to be too intrusive because people won't go buy their car if that's happening. But uh, if, if you can, like you're saying with the Tesla driver facing camera, if it's looking at the driver and saying, I can see you looking at your phone, dummy, stop it. Um, then maybe we can pair these technologies and they can simultaneously bring crash rates down from our record highs. I'd like to think that's true, but I'm not as optimistic about human behavior as you are. I, I, have, I have a friend who's one of those people who just won't wear a seatbelt. And every time he gets in my vehicle, I'll start driving and I don't even hassle him at first anymore. I'll start driving and the chime will be going off, not quite continuously, but pretty close, even though he's in the passenger seat. He's so immune to it, he doesn't even notice. 
you know, it's it's not until a few minutes later he thinks, oh, that's right. In a minute, I'm going to have to hear Alan hassle me about this too, and he's going to pull over to stop. It's easier just to put the belt on. But the chime, which aggravates me to no end, but I never drive without a seatbelt, uh, has you know zero effect on him. And um, I drove a. Um, it was a pickup truck, an F-250 recently, and it looks like Ford had copied General Motors' uh, a backseat reminder. You know, a, on a GM vehicle, if you had opened a back door, then when you turn off the car, it gives you a chime. Hey, check the back seat in case you left a kid or a pet back there. Well, this F-250, that went off every time I turned the truck off even if a back door hadn't opened. And it was terribly aggravating. If there was a way to turn it off, I couldn't find it. So, you know, the attempting to change human performance without aggravating most drivers, you know, that's a challenge. That's really challenging. That does seem like one of those things that might have to be mandated via legislation, just because uh, if the auto manufacturers all don't have to do it, then people would just drive the cars that don't do it. <laughs> well, true. Well, now there is there is one way to handle that, though. Say with, I think, let's see, I think every level two system I've driven, if you don't have your seatbelt on, it won't work. If you take your seatbelt off, it'll disengage. So if you want the value of level two, you have to wear a seatbelt. You know, we're not quite there yet, but we shortly will be where at every new vehicle with level two, if you want it to work, you have to wear your seatbelt and you can't be looking at your phone, right? Those are things a Model Y can do now, and that'll be more common in newer vehicles. So, you know, that's a more reasonable way to do it, I think. If you want this benefit, you can't drive distracted. If you want to drive distracted, you have to turn off this benefit, then it's even harder to drive distracted and, you know, maybe... You know, at least we're not at least we're not doing two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. Yeah, I hope we can find that balance, because in five years, I would love to meet back up with you in 2028 and look at the crash rates from 2021, 2022 and just be like, that was ridiculous. I'm glad we made I'm glad we made some progress. Um, and on those ones, the crashes, the ones, the the cases where the autonomous system didn't do great. What so kind of moving toward the practicality section now. We get a case, average recon gets a case, you get a case. There are suspicions, like say, you know, my Tundra, 2018 Tundra plows into the back of a car on the highway at 55 miles an hour. And we're like, okay, I know that vehicle had some pre-impact uh, braking capabilities and it had collision detection capabilities. Why didn't that work? Doesn't matter on the car specifically, but what is that process? How should recons be thinking about just starting the process of diving down the rabbit hole to try to understand if some advanced system should have been participating in the event? Yeah, so that's the point that, like I said, is on the other side of a line. So every expert should be able to say, your Tundra had a, a collision warning and automatic braking system. Um, and I can, and here's how I can tell that it, all of us should be able to do that. The next step of why didn't it avoid this crash? Some of us are going to dive in and learn everything about that. Others in our field are going to say, you know what, that's, that's, that's for somebody else. But the quickest way to look at that is what limitations might apply if the crash is in the dark, um, especially with a pedestrian, the camera is not all that useful. If there's a high closing speed, if the closing speed is over about 50 miles an hour, uh, very, very few systems can automatically break in time to avoid the crash, and very few systems can warn the driver in time for the driver to break. 
So that's a limitation. Um, if the target has an unusual radar reflection or an unusual appearance, so say an equipment trailer that's a mix of a bunch of different things with different radar reflections and the, the taillights are in different places and the license plate's in the wrong place and it has two wheels on the right side and one wheel on the left side or something, um, the radar is going to be confused by that. It's going to see a lot of noise. The camera is going to be confused by that. It's not going to classify it as a vehicle. It may try to, you know, literally just drive right through it. To us, that seems crazy. Why would it happen? But it's important to remember that image classifiers, which are what the camera uses, don't think the way we do. They're faster and more accurate than we are, but only if it's something they're trained to look at. So an image classifier can usually pick out a motorcycle faster and more accurately than we can in a crowd of vehicles. Um, but a, uh, a, a Can-Am, a three-wheeled motorcycle or um, what was another one? I can't remember the name of it. How well is it? Spider. Uh, no, not the Spider. It's a third one. Uh, real funky looking like a retro style in the front. They're not very common. Um, but even with the spider, that's a good example because there's only one wheel in the back, but yet it's the width of a car. You know, how is an image classifier going to handle that? Who knows? Depends, depends on how it was uh, trained and, you know, what the angle of the sun was at that moment. There can be lots of reasons why it doesn't work. So uh, you see this in the owner's manual. The owner's manual lists more reasons why these systems won't work than they do why it will work. And they're not just, you know, yeah, they're trying to cover their bases and all that, but it's true. There's lots of reasons why they won't work. And that's what I was going to, I was thinking as you're talking about that, it seems like the owner's manual is probably the recon's best friend at the beginning. It's like, okay, maybe even before you go do your inspection, I just got this new case and it involves a newer vehicle. Let me just first step, go to the owner's manual, figure out what this thing might be equipped with. And then I can look for the appropriate sensors once I get there to confirm what what it has and if it's equipped. Yeah. Yeah. So that's actually, to me, step two. Step one is look at the vehicle. And if there's a camera at the top of the windshield, it has some type of ADAS in it. Uh, if it's a Nissan with no camera, it probably still has a radar. So that's step one. But step two, you're right, is to look at the um, owner's manual, the build sheet, the sales brochure for that year. What did this vehicle come equipped with? And thankfully, this isn't the case so much in new vehicles, but in say 2018, um, you could buy a Tahoe with probably three different levels of ADAS. You could have uh, a collision warning that only worked in a narrow speed range. You could have a collision warning and automatic braking that worked in a more broad speed range. And then you could have collision warning, automatic braking and adaptive cruise control with even a different speed range. Well, the hardware in the vehicle looks the same. The camera's the same. The radar could be different, but you can't really tell by looking at it. So yeah, what trim level is this in that model year? What could you get with that trim level? If say the, um, the lane keep assist doesn't work below 38 miles per hour, and this guy was doing 30, well, the lane keep assist wasn't gonna help him then, right? Um, the um, adaptive cruise control, if it's not a full speed system, it might slow down to nine miles per hour, chime, and then turn off and let the vehicle just roll into the stopped car in front of it. You know, that's my favorite. That's thing. one of my favorite things. Yeah, my Tundra does that at 25. You know, it's just like, you're on your own, buddy. And it's pretty abrupt. It's not like immediate, but it chimes and then two seconds later, it's me. 
Yeah. So someday someone's going to get this crash and I want to hear about it where there's this amazing event that can only be avoided by an automatic braking system. It slams on the brakes, comes to an almost complete stop to avoid the stopped object and then releases the brakes and rolls into it at eight, eight miles an hour. <laughs> so it did all this amazing stuff to avoid the crash and still hits the target. And there's still, you know, all the, all the injuries we hear about in those cases, right? Yeah, it's, it's on you from here. And so what, what is the CDR? Most of us are uh, accessing, you know, event data via the Bosch kit, the CDR tool. And how often does, uh, do those downloads tell us if there was some sort of uh, vehicle intervention? Um, unfortunately, not very often. The data fields have been in there since uh, 2013, 2014 for some manufacturers. If you look at a Chrysler vehicle, uh, it'll show a whole bunch of fields for, you know, tracking a target object and, you know, if the adaptive cruise was turned on and all this stuff. Most of the time they're empty. They're just not populated because that vehicle didn't have that capability or it wasn't turned on at the time. So uh, up until, say, two years ago, uh, very rarely did I find anything useful in the CDR data related to an ADAS event. But that's changing rapidly now, you know, especially on GM vehicles. Um, but the toughest question to answer that depends entirely on the manufacturer is if we see braking, is that the vehicle braking or the driver braking? And say Audi is one example, they'll tell you which it is. Some manufacturers leave you out there to guess. You have no idea. And then others will show you, you can um, predict that there was an automatic braking event because you don't see the brake pedal depressed, but you see a rapid deceleration. Sometimes you might see brake pedal pressure, right? So, okay, obviously there's a, a deceleration happening it must be an automatic braking event because this vehicle records foot pedal and the driver didn't step on the foot pedal. So yeah, it can be, it can be tough to figure that out. And I've had cases where I've had to say, I don't know who braked, but what I can tell you is that the automatic braking system wouldn't have done more than this. You know, the closing speed, the time to contact, the rate of deceleration are all what I expect from an automatic braking event on this type of vehicle of this age. But I can't tell you if that happened here or if the driver just coincidentally braked at about the same level. And that's a key thing to remember in this field. If I'm looking at a crash on your 2018 Tundra and I want to go out and recreate it, I don't want to use a 2019 Tundra or a 2020. And if yours is an SR5 trim, I don't want to use a limited trim. I need to use that model year, maybe even near that production month. I want to use that trim level. Um, and even if I do that in a Tesla because of fleet learning, I may still get a different response. You know, there was a, a big Tesla crash a couple of years ago in Florida where when we went to do a reenactment on it, we had to accept the fact that we're testing a different vehicle now because the vehicle has, you know, a year and a half newer of software updates and fleet learning. And for us, there's really no, you know, all we can do is, uh, you know, kind of ex ex try to extrapolate to what was available at that time. Yeah, that sounds super challenging. That I just thought of that as you were speaking about it. And like, oh my gosh, if I'm trying to test a Tesla where it's getting an update a week or whatever, then you're looking at totally different algorithms than were in place a year and a half ago. And, you know, one solution to that, which is completely impractical, is that we have all this documented. Somebody's tested a, a, a Tesla that week of 2022, and they know how it behaved then, but that's not going to happen. Um, ho hopefully, I, I've heard you talk a little bit about 
the importance of just the community developing developing this level of knowledge like we have with other disciplines, say crush analysis or EDR analysis. You know, I can almost always call Rick Ruth and say, I have a 2019 Ford that's doing this. And he's like, oh yeah, uh, Bobby from Michigan saw something similar. But we're not there yet with uh, autonomous functions. And some of these things you can go test. It seems like testing is a big part of it. Like you kind of have to go test that vehicle but it's some, in some cases, you're going to have to just raise the white flag and be like, this might not be the same configuration as it was at the time. Right, right. Yeah, the good thing about it is most of the cases we're getting now are crash or no crash. You know, these vehicles hit at 50 miles an hour. Could the truck have stopped instead? Well, that's a really big difference. There's no, there's no splitting hairs if you're looking at a 50 mile per hour impact or no impact, right? Where it would get tough is let's say we have, and, and I've had this one, let's say we have a 12 mile per hour impact and the automatic braking was engaged during that time. If we make one or two changes to this scenario, could it have stopped and not impacted the other vehicle? That's a lot tougher. Now we're starting to split hairs and now we have to consider things like variability of system performance, right? Uh, but fortunately, those aren't too common. Usually it's a really, really big difference. And what is available for ancillary reports at this point? I know Tesla will supply the owner with certain reports and we have vehicle control history. If CDR doesn't answer what we want, where else can we look? Yeah, so within the CDR, we get the uh, the ASCM data from general, some General Motors vehicles. Um, other manufacturers offer bits and pieces within the CDR data. Uh, on Toyotas, we get the vehicle control history with the images, which, which is improving dramatically. It's amazing what we can get out of that. Uh, with Teslas, we get the EDR that doesn't tell us anything about ADAS. And then sometimes we can get log data, which gives us a mix of different things, uh, not always useful. And then on trucks with uh, Bendix or Wabco or Detroit Assurance, we can get a, a mix of different data from those that just like truck engine data, a lot of times there's problems with it that we have to try to you know handle or assess. Um, so it's kind of a wild west of what's out there and how we can get it. But what I find really frustrating is there's a lot more data out there we can't get. For example, every windshield camera I've disassembled has a flash memory chip in it. Are there images stored in there? Can we get to them? Who knows? You know, that's, that's beyond my capability. But um, that's what started me down my mantra that we are surrounded by electronic data. We just have to find it and validate it and put it to our use. Um, but yeah, so there's data in the vehicles that, that we're still not getting and not seeing. And how do we get to that? You know, some cases, I think we have to admit it's there, but it's not feasible to get it for this case. But the more we work as a field together to get a hold of some of this data, the, you know, the more we can do with it, obviously. And one big part, it seems, of developing this group knowledge is is testing. How often do you find yourself performing tests either for research or as part of your class? I saw that one of your classes, and maybe this is always happening, was uh, run at IHS. So you had the ability to perform tests, it seems anyway. Uh, how often are you doing tests for research, for classes, and for cases? Uh, I'm doing testing for research uh, constantly. Uh, basically, any scenario I can create, I'm trying to test. Um, for training, we just added that to my SAE class at the last session. So now that'll be, uh, every time I do the class, it'll be two days, and there'll be about a half day of testing 
where we put people people in the vehicles, let them experience the system in use, try and download data out of it. And that's that's been a really big thing. Um, using it on cases can be tough uh, for three reasons. I've got to be able to recreate the environment and the vehicles. Um, I've got to recreate the crash configuration. <clears throat> and if the target vehicle is moving, the complexity goes through the roof. Let's say I have a, and I've had this case, I have the tractor trailer going 70, the lead vehicle is going 20, uh, and a horrendous impact results. Well, how do I test that? Even with a deformable barrier, there's still going to be, you know, a fair amount of damage at the end of it, right? So those scenarios uh, can be pretty tough. Frankly, they lend themselves a little bit better to computer simulation, but that's only good if we can validate the simulator. Right. So what I end up doing instead a lot of times is boxing in what actually happened. I can't tell you what actually happened in this case, but I can tell you, you know, it, it's not over here and it's not over here. It's somewhere below this and somewhere above that. So our actual crash, I can put it in a box and hopefully within that box, I can say, you know, here's what would have been different had this worked or not worked or, or whatever had happened. Right. Um, so that's kind of what we end up doing. It's almost, there's a great paper on this with airbag deployment thresholds, where the idea is how do you reverse engineer something without having to actually reverse engineer the whole thing, just the parts we care about? How do you box in what it is? I think it was Exponent who did the paper where they were trying to box in deployment thresholds for a certain type of vehicle in a certain kind of crash. And they basically admitted, we can't tell you exactly what it is for this car, but we can put some limits around it. And that's what I try to do with testing. It can be challenging because I've not only have to match the image that the camera is looking for, but I have to match the radar reflection as well. And radars are looking for a 3D reflection. They're not looking, you know, if you look across the radar path, it doesn't want to see just a flat reflection of a vehicle. It wants to see a tailgate, a rear axle, a transmission cross member, a front axle, you know, something like the back of the cab. So it wants to see noise that roughly is the length of a vehicle. If you only give it a flat plane, some radar systems will ignore it. So, you know, that limits the, the proxies that are the exemplars that we can use in testing. Yeah, that's it. Sounds super challenging, and then like I, I think that's a good analogy too for for the way that I've been thinking about this. In part, is similar to like you're talking about, where the airbag thresholds, where you get a call from some attorney and they say, "Well, the airbag should have popped in this, right? Can you tell me?" And it's like I can tell you if it was commanded or not, but it's a matter of evaluating the algorithm that was designed for this vehicle specifically. That's the only way I can tell you if it should have deployed or not, which is not me. And how do you have the qualifications to go up against the manufacturer or the developer of that algorithm to say, I know better than you who have been developing these things for decades. And it seems like there might be an analogy to that with autonomous vehicles, where if, if somebody wants to go against Tesla for their algorithm, they're coming, uh, you know, it's tough to evaluate A and B, who has the credentials to say that they know better than what the manufacturers are doing? Yeah, I mean, if, if you look at um, plaintiff cases against manufacturers, which is a type of case that I generally don't take, if you try to jump into the weeds and say, hey, if you had, if you had tuned this parameter a little differently, we wouldn't have this crash. If you had made it like this, we wouldn't have this crash. Well, a manufacturer can probably list a whole bunch of reasons why they did it the way they did or why they didn't do it another way. But I think from a, a plaintiff claim standpoint, 
it's probably easier to take a step back and say, hey, look, you sold this system, you advertised it as being able to do this, and it didn't. So now you want to have a bunch of excuses on why it didn't. No, the fact is you sold it to do this, and now a consumer is injured because it didn't. You know, I think from from a plaintiff standpoint, that's probably the best way to to make a claim rather than you know getting into the weeds on it. Yeah, and it seems like that's what Tesla has been up against recently is because obviously they are pretty vocal about what their cars are capable of and they use terms like autopilot. So the plaintiff attorneys have kind of latched onto that. Although I don't know if they've been successful yet. I, there was a, a recent case here in LA that that they just lost for unintended acceleration, plaintiff attorney lost. Um, they obviously have really good data. If you want to come after Tesla and claim that there was an unintended acceleration, you better show that the uh, accelerator pedal was not pressed and the brake was. And good luck. <laughs> um, I would hope you would ask for that data first. That's a good yeah, place to start. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so do you ever test on a component level? In other words, uh, figure out who makes the radar module, grab that, see what the capabilities are, read the owner's manual, or is that not necessary at this, at this stage, the way you see it? I've tried to do some things with that. And what I'm finding is that the future of our field is going to end up being a lot of software engineering because trying to do anything with components or trying to do anything with algorithms, it dives really quickly into software engineering. And, um, you know, I'm finding that's kind of challenging to work with, but even if I get a component, the component can be configured different ways, right? And the, so let's say I'm looking at the limitations of a radar sensor. It can be configured to output only uh, raw data, or it can be output, uh, it can be configured to output targets. Most manufacturers just want the target. You know, what is a moving target? Where is it? You know, what's the size of the radar reflection? What's its lateral speed? That kind of thing, right? Just give me that. Um, for a number of years, Tesla Autopilot didn't use that at all. It used the raw data coming out of the radar that most manufacturers don't. So if I'm going to do component testing, how was it configured in the vehicle? You know, it can get uh, it can get challenging to work with. But I think we're going to see more of that in the future. And there are some papers from other companies where they've looked at components, and I think it's been useful. But to apply that to a specific case, you know, yeah, it's challenging. You know, it's definitely challenging. Yeah, you have that big gap, like you're mentioning. You you don't know how that signal is being processed, and unless unless you can get to it downstream of processing, then it might not be telling you anything. Yeah, and a lot of times, how the algorithm uses it can be hard to understand. Uh, on a Toyota is a great example because we can get so much data out of it. If you look at say the target number or the target classification, a lot of times it doesn't make sense. Like it's not a it's not a repeatable value if you do the same test over and over again. So why it's doing what it's doing or why the manufacturer has chosen to do it that way uh, is not always apparent. So what, what I've done so far is look primarily at the end performance rather than trying to get into how it gets there. So treat the system as a black box, give it some inputs. What are the outputs? Are they doing what we expect it to do? Is, is at this point a safer way to look at it, I think. Hopefully that'll change in the future. And that was one of my questions is what does fingerprinting ADAS performance mean? And I suspect that's what you were just talking about, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, so yeah, so fingerprinting is something I've been working on and Detroit assurance data is really good for this because every time we get data from a, a VRDU, a video radar decision unit, it gives us, uh, I think it's 10 events 
Well, nine of them are going to be unrelated, but hey, that's still data we can look at. And so something that we really need to be able to fingerprint or um, correlate is time to contact versus speed. So if I'm going to drive at a fixed barrier at 10 miles an hour, I know pretty well at what point I'm going to get a warning and at what point I'm going to get automatic braking. And it'll vary for different manufacturers, but I kind of know where it's going to be. At 30 miles an hour, it should be a bit earlier. At 70 miles an hour, it might be the same as 30, which doesn't make any sense. It might be much earlier, which would be good, or it might not happen at all. <laughs> so, you know, can we come up with kind of a graph of time to contact versus speed for different classes of vehicles? That'd be really good for answering the question, why didn't this system work? Oh, well, it's because your time to contact or your speed was way outside of the bounds of where these systems work in most vehicles, right? So that's kind of what I'm hoping to put together. And it's it's hard to get because you have to have that data of near misses, which we can get from Toyota's and Detroit Assurance Systems, but not a lot of other places. And the manufacturers, the manufacturers have some of that data from their testing, but not from the real world. And there's a big difference between testing and real world. <clears throat> a great demonstration of that was the BMW X1 that, um, I forget if it was IIHS or I think it was AAA that tested it for pedestrian detection using a standard pedestrian detection test method, using a standard mannequin. Everything was the same they do in every other vehicle. It didn't avoid it once. It hit the pedestrian like 32 times. Well, I, I don't think that the BMW system sucks. I think it was designed or tuned for some other scenario, maybe real life pedestrians, not a mannequin, right? Um, another example is uh, there's a type of uh, deformable barrier called the ADAC barrier. It's great because it's fairly cheap, it's deformable, it's easy to hit. The radar signature of it looks nothing like a regular vehicle. So as I talked about this kind of 3D radar reflection, manufacturers now have to say, okay, we need to be able to pick out a motorcycle and a bicycle and a truck and a car and a, and, you know, a boat on a trailer. Oh, and make sure we can pick up that ADAC barrier so we don't end up on the cover of consumer reports for hitting one and not knowing it, right? <laughs> so what, what a headache for a manufacturer, right? Yeah, that's 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 not what they're actually looking for. Yeah, uh, because that doesn't exist in the real world, but that's that's what they test on. So we should be using better barriers, it sounds like. The, the ADAC might not be an appropriate methodology or a tool to use. So it's, it's a great barrier for testing. There's a lot of neat things you can do with it. Um, but the problem with testing any system where AI is involved is that you can end up kind of giving the system the answers to the test. You, you, you kind of over-focus on a certain scenario and it starts to ignore other scenarios. So that's kind of the risk with it. But uh, yeah, certainly that, you know, it's wise to use a variety of targets. And I know manufacturers try to do that. Uh, there was a study in Australia by Volvo looking at kangaroos to make sure they could track kangaroos. Because you might have 30 kangaroos on the side of the road that really aren't a hazard. They're just eating. But you might have two that want to run across the road. Well, you've got to be able to identify those two, but select out the other 48, right? I mean, that's, that's an extreme example of trying to identify unusual targets.
That is a unique uh, down under problem right there, for sure. <laughs> so we don't have a lot of that in the States. But it does lead to what we do have a lot of, which is edge cases. The entire problem with autonomy can come down to training humans to use it and edge cases, because no matter what we do, we can't ever get out of edge cases. Um, a kid on a hoverboard looks like a pedestrian, but the legs don't move like a pedestrian. It's not going the speed of a typical pedestrian, but to us, the hazard is the same. To your autonomous system, does it think of it the same way or does it put it in the category of a motorcycle or, or a bus stop? You know, who knows, right? Until you present it with that, that, um, that edge case, you don't know. No, I've got a great example in my class of an edge case where the hazards in the road are a chicken and a woman in an electric wheelchair with a broom chasing the chicken. You, you can't. They didn't program that in? Yeah, come on. <laughs> but but it was a, a Waymo vehicle that maneuvered through this scenario, and it did exactly what a human would do. It stopped when the hazards were in front of it. When the hazards were on the other side of the road, it tried to creep through the environment, and then it stopped again when the chicken came back in front of it, and it took pictures the whole way, which is exactly what humans would do. So that's pretty impressive, right? That's a, that's a success for autonomy. That totally is. Oh, man. I, I, I want to I buy some of these uh, test devices, by the way. That just sounds fun to, to at least get my feet wet. Is that something that somebody can do who doesn't specialize in it, or are they too expensive? Um, so I'll, I'll give you three examples, and one of them is a warning. But the first example is go on Amazon and buy a cardboard cutout of your favorite character or politician or actor. And if you have a vehicle newer than about, I think probably 2020, so I don't think your Tundra will do this, but vehicles newer than about 2020, the pedestrian detection relies mostly on image classification and ignores radar data. So lots of new cars will stop for a cardboard cutout if it looks like a person and if the wind doesn't blow it over. So yeah, that, and buy somebody you want to hit, I imagine, you know, buy some figure that you hate yeah, mine uh, mine is uh, james bond you'll see it at rex i'll have james bond there and i'll get a couple others in case someone runs over mr bond um so that's the easiest way to do it if you want to use a car shaped target uh that's more difficult um, you have to have an image so like a, a vinyl graphic image stuck to something deformable it can either be uh, a piece of foam or mine is actually bonded to a radar reflective fabric that I can then stretch out on uh, like an awning, I can attach it to an inflatable like soccer goal or something like that. Uh, or you can make it a, a thick piece of foam with metal in it to be the reflectors. And some vehicles re re will respond to those and some won't because they don't have that 3D reflection I was talking about, right? So my Tesla, the adaptive cruise control will stop for that, but the collision warning will ignore it and blow right through it. Same vehicle. Yeah. How, what does what does your hood look like, Alan? <laughs> a couple of chips on it. So yeah, um, yeah. So two different performances from the same vehicle. But now for my warning, uh, there were two cases in one. In, well, I think there's now been three in Florida and Georgia, where customers at a dealership said, "Hey, what is this stuff? How does it work?" And the salesman said, "I'll show you." One of them aimed at a tree and hit the gas. He hit the damn tree. Oh, man. <laughs> Another yeah, one that is... aimed at a popped car, a stopped car, hit the gas, drove into the car, 
And then there's a third one I use actually in my class where it actually hits a group of pedestrians. So the problem is if you're going to do it, make sure it's something you're okay hitting and make sure it has a radar reflection unless it's the pedestrian scenario I talked about, make sure it looks like a vehicle. But the first time I did this with a vehicle image, the vehicle image I found uh, didn't have a license plate on it. And this, and I wasn't getting a very good response. And I thought, oh, there's no license plate on there. So I printed an image of a license plate, not, not metal reflective, just the image of it and stuck it on there. And the performance of ADAS systems probably doubled just from adding a license plate. So odd little things like that, you know, can make a difference. So, but um, yeah, but don't practice with anything you're not willing to hit. It's kind of <laughs> the bottom So I shouldn't line. put my motorcycle, yeah, in front of my uh, newly acquired Tesla that I'm hoping to get before too long and, uh, and just try to plow right into it. I don't recommend it. I don't recommend it. Uh, it, it Rex, you will see me walk in front of them and you'll see times when it works and when it doesn't work, but I've practiced at that. I'm a trained professional. Don't try that at home. <laughs> yeah, make sure you tell Rex's insurance company that so that they uh, write the policy. <laughs> exactly, uh, exactly. So, and that is actually, I, I didn't mean to cover this, but it's a bit of a selfish question. Tesla has been uh, getting a little bit of heat recently for pegging motorcyclists. Uh, is there a inflatable device that can be used for testing for uh, motorcycle detection for the autonomous systems? Not that I've seen. Not that I've seen. I guess LightPoint's got another mission, then we have to build one. There you go. There you go. Uh, you know, it's interesting because some of the testing I've done suggested that cameras and radar are really good at picking out motorcycles, surprisingly good at picking them out. So when I heard that Tesla has hit a couple of them, it, it, it surprised me a little bit because I've uh, had the opposite experience where they pick them up very quickly. But I'm doing this like in a stopped scenario. You know, can it pick them up at speed? and assess closing speed and lateral offset, you know, that I don't know. But but fire trucks worry me more. I don't know how many fire trucks Teslas need to run into, but it's been, it's been a lot. <laughs> so that, that's a little more concerning to me. Yeah, now that's, uh, I guess somebody gets hurt either way, but in that case, it's definitely the Tesla driver taking the, the beating. Um, so the next section I was hoping to talk, to, talk about is, is kind of the future, and they'll be via my roundabout questions but one thing I've heard you talk about a bit is how or how not autonomous uh, vehicles will kill recon. And, you know, we all thought EDR might kill recon in the early 2000s. We're like, oh, that's the end of us. They got, we got downloads. What do they need us for? How do you look at the potential for autonomous vehicles crushing us in our industry? Um, I don't think that'll happen at all. What I think will happen is it will dramatically change our industry. I think in 20 years from now, we won't carry tape measures anymore. We won't marry. We won't measure uh, tread depth or tire pressures anymore. But we'll all be experts at reading code, and uh, you know, looking at validation studies within software. So I think our work is going to move more toward software engineering. You know, when you think about now, for us to <clears throat> do some looking at hex data, um, you know. 20 years from now, that just seemed crazy that we would even consider hex data. And now sometimes we have to look at that stuff. So um, that's the biggest change I see happening is a shift. And for some people, uh, they're going to feel like it doesn't fit them. And they'll have to either choose to change or maybe limit what kind of work that they do. Um, but it'll make opportunities for other people as well, you know, who have the software background and maybe not the automotive background to kind of come into the field. So yeah, it's definitely going to shift, but it's not 
you know, if EDR didn't kill our business, if anything, it grew it, uh, ADAS isn't going to kill it either. It'll, it'll grow it, but change it. That's how I looked at video too. I think a lot of people are like, well, videos everywhere now, so we don't need the recons, but if your practice is anything like mine, when I get a video, it just means that my bill is going to be bigger. It's going to be more work, uh, because you can, you can figure things out on a more detailed level, but it requires a lot more work to do that. Well, I guess that's a good analogy. So video usually allows us to do a better quality job than we could do without it. Sometimes it just adds noise, but usually it's a better quality result. And ADAS will be the same. You know, in, in the future, once the ways we get data from it will be more um, standardized, uh, we will be able to do a better quality job because of it than we can do today. So I, I look forward to that. So how do you consider your role? Like, so people like you and me, I'm not uh, quite as advanced uh, as you age-wise, chronologically speaking. Uh, <laughs> advanced, but, I like that. I'm advanced. That's what I am. You are very, very advanced, Alan. It, so are, are, do you plan personally on diving into that? How does somebody like, okay, if I'm entering recon and I'm 25, it seems inevitable. I have to be focusing on the software side. I'm a mechanical engineer. I'm in my 40s. Uh, who knows how long until I have to retire is, do I have to jump into the software side? Are you going to jump into the software side or can we get a buddy and say, Hey, I need you to help me with my recons now. Um, I, I think it's a mix. I remember um, a couple of years ago, I had a problem where I found a programming error. I think it was a cat engine where something about the timing was clearly a programming error. I could identify it, but I didn't know what it meant. And I have a, an old friend who's an engineer at an Apple, a software engineer at Apple. And I sent it to him and he said, oh, this is a complement of twos problem. And sent me a, a link to what it was, an explanation of how it worked, you know, a, a, a solution that likely would allow me to correct it and still work with it. I had no idea that existed, you know, and, and, but he knew immediately when I told him what the problem was, uh, the same guy when I needed to do a, a low-pass Butterworth filter in Excel, I couldn't find a clean way to do it. He wrote me one in like five minutes, you know. So th that literally is exactly the kind of thing he does for a living. But he doesn't he doesn't know how a car works, right? So yeah, being able to go to him is really useful. But on the other hand, I find it really frustrating that there's more I could do if I had a, a software development background, right? And I've thought about getting more into that field. And then I remembered, oh, that's right. I hate coding. <laughs> Can't stand <laughs> yeah. coding. So there's a reason kind of we're not software engineers. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But, you know, you look at the stuff Jeremy Daly does, you know, he's not, I mean, he does coding, but I don't think that's at the end of the day, what he's trying to do. He's trying to reverse engineer a lot of electronics and software, but not actually create it. Um, if I had what he has, I would be thrilled. I would like to have the knowledge and capability Jeremy Daly has and put that into my work where I can grab a radar and get data out of it and do testing with just that component. And I, I, I'm moving that way, but it's fairly slow, right? So, um, but, you know, part of what started me down this road is every couple of years, I get bored of left turn crashes. Oh, this time it was the red car turning left, not the blue car turning left. Oh, that'll, that'll make a big difference, right? This is exciting now. Well, it just gets boring after a while, right? So whenever my work gets boring, I start messing around with things to make it interesting. You know, what can I do? What new methodology can I experiment with? What can I learn to make this interesting? And in 2015, I bought the new Ford F-150 when it came out that had, it was, it was one of the earlier vehicles that had the whole suite of ADAS stuff on it. 
and I was fascinated by it. And I just, you know, I had to learn everything I could about it. And that's how it started. So a big motivator to me is to keep me interested, to keep me excited about this work. And, and to me, this is exciting. It's probably not to everybody, but to me it is. And uh, so that's really what drives my motivation is when I, when I have questions I need to answer and when I need curiosity to inspire me. So that's kind of what governs how much I learn about it. But one of my mountain biking buddies is doing a, um, uh, a master's degree in electrical engineering right now and is an absolute nut about Tesla's. Well, we were on the side of a mountain bike trail yesterday and someone was making fun of us because we were talking more than biking. Well, to me, that's that's part of how I not only enjoy what I do, but how I learn more about it. Right. I learn things from him that, that I wouldn't find on my own. So, you know, I to me, we're fortunate if our work overlaps with our personal lives such that we enjoy what we do and there's not much distinction. You know, for me to smash up vehicles is fun. I don't have to get paid to, to do that. So we're fortunate in that way, right? Not everybody has that, but but that makes it easier to learn things as well. You know, for someone else, if this topic is dry or boring or, um, you know, unappealing for some way, yeah, it's not going to be as much fun to learn about it. They're probably not going to learn as much, but that's okay. That's different for everybody. Yeah. And then you will need that buddy. You'll have to pair up. It'll be a multidisciplinary effort. Um, maybe they can call you, they can call an electrical engineer. And like you said, uh, you know, for human factors, it's like we, most of us can answer like, what is the response time to a left turning vehicle in the middle of the day where contrast isn't an issue. Most of us can do that. And most of us should be able to do that. But if it's going to get more detailed, phone a friend or dive down that rabbit hole really deep. And if it's something that blows your hair back, then that's you. And if it's not, then you're going to need to know who to call. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a different decision uh, for everybody. Uh, for me, it, it's not surprising. I do get called from people uh, looking for help. And uh, I like the fact that then I'm just doing the ADAS part. Someone else has already done the reconstruction. You know, that's already, I don't have to worry about that. I can focus just on this, this nugget, this part that I'm so fascinated by. And uh, so I kind of like that. Yeah. And we're, we're, uh, we have a lot of similarities career-wise we were talking about before recording. And I, I think we've always found that we had a lot in common and that's the way my career has developed too, where I'm just like searching for exciting things, yeah. new things to learn, things that can help me perform analyses that are, are more sophisticated, more detailed. And if find something, even if it doesn't look profitable at first, I'm like, I don't care. I'm, I'm diving down that rabbit hole. Cause that looks like a lot of fun. Oh and, yeah, uh, absolutely. Generally, they will align. You know, if, if you're excited about it and you see that it personally has value, then generally there's other people that are going to find value in it too. Mm -hmm. So that on that note, seems like continuing education always has obviously been important in recon, especially with EDR and video analysis and things that are changing quickly. But this it brings it to a whole new level, um, where things are changing so quickly. If, if you really even want that base level of knowledge, it seems like you're going to have to, you're going to have to pay attention and go seek out some classes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, it's, it's difficult to even keep up with. I mean, my, so with the SAE class, there's a test at the end of the class, right? And one of the questions was true or false. Are there any level three production vehicles available in the U.S.? Well, the answer was false until last week. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, that's just one example, but literally these things change weekly, right? And um, yeah, so it's, it's tough for even me to keep up with. And of course, it's that question that keeps good people in our field awake at night. What if I'm wrong, right? What if I missed something? What if I didn't get something? What if everybody else knows 
that Teslas can't identify motorcycles. And I'm the only one who didn't know that, right? What if something like that happens? Well, you know, I think that paranoia is part of what drives us to keep learning, to make sure that nobody knows more than we do. But um, yeah, no, it is, it is a significant challenge trying to stay on top of it, especially when the same vehicle, one model year to another, can have dramatically different behavior. You know, it can improve significantly. Uh, the technology we have went from pretty much not being able to detect pedestrians at all in, say, 2017 production vehicles, and I'm kind of generalizing here, to where I'm willing to walk in front of most 2021 production vehicles below 15 miles an hour. I mean, that, that's huge. That's a huge that difference, is. right? In just yeah. four years, you know, and, and again, that's, you know, how much did tires or engines or seatbelts or airbags change in those four years? Yeah, they improve, but, you know, incrementally, right? Yeah. And, and I, I know in speaking with Rick Ruth, who teaches EDR classes, and then I teach a motorcycle class, one of the biggest benefits of being an instructor like that, informing the communication, uh, the, the relationship, I should say, with the community is that they ask you questions when they see weird things and you can tackle them together and then you end up on the forefront. So I know you're teaching the SAE class. I suspect you're learning a lot from all of the attendees who come with casework, A. And then B, I'd just like to hear you talk a little bit about the course. I saw SAE and you made an awesome trailer for the course and it looked like they're, you're, you're doing testing. It looked like you were at the IHS uh, facilities there, uh, but could you just fill us in a little bit about the class and? Uh, I, there's one in May, it looks like. I'm hoping to attend. Uh, yes. Yeah. So the class I started maybe five years ago, it was a one-day class, not just on autonomy or ADAS, but reconstruction of crashes using it. And there's another really good SAE class just on autonomy itself. But mine focuses on the reconstruction of accidents involving ADAS. And it took me a couple of years to kind of get the content and get it all worked out. But uh, this past year, um, we engaged with IIHS to use their facility to do not only the training, but also do, uh, you know, the on-site testing. And I got to tell you, that was a highlight of my career. We show up there, we get a tour of the whole place. They do a live crash test of their, you know, uh, small overlap uh, test for us. Uh, they ran the pedestrian mannequin, which is moving across the road. Anytime you have a moving target and a moving vehicle, the complexity is a lot higher. They did that right for us, and then they set up stationary targets for us to drive into. We could download them. And then we're back in the classroom where we're all sitting around like a round table. It's not me up in the front. We're all kind of sitting together, which creates more informal conversation. There were TV screens all the way around us, so anyone could look in any direction and see what I'm showing. And we're talking about this stuff, and I just stopped talking for a second and stared out the window, the big you know window the whole length of the room. And as I stopped, people started turning around. Well, what was coming in was a transporter full of Rivians, the R1T and the R1S, which I don't think were even available for sale yet. They were early, you know, early production units coming to IHS for their testing for rating and so on. I hadn't even seen the R1S. And here, when 11 of them come in, they're going to leave in a dumpster, you know, by the time they're done. Yeah. Because they're going to cry, they've got to crush them when they're done. So, just you know, the, the whole thing was just amazing. Well, now that um, uh, COVID travel restrictions have lightened up, the companies that support IAHS are filling up their travel schedules. So we can't use that facility right now, but we're um, uh, probably going to be using uh, the M City Autonomous Vehicle Test Track in Ann Arbor near Detroit. 
uh, starting in May. I'll be up there in two weeks to go do a tour of it, but it looks like we'll use that from now on and all the same kind of stuff, just a, a different track. So, and uh, one neat thing about that is they have some V2X capability there that we can mess with. And they have a level four shuttle that we can ride in. So some other neat things there, because what I really want people to do when they come to my class is not listen to some old man talk. I want them to experience things and see it for themselves. Because to me, the best way to teach someone isn't to tell them something, but to show them a, a phenomenon and let them decide for themselves what happened. You know, here it is in action. Here it is working. Here it is not working sometimes. You decide for yourself. Don't don't wait for me to tell you what it means. Decide for yourself what to do with that and how to kind of package this up for your own understanding. And uh, again, I remember in the tour of IHS, uh, a friend of mine who was in the class, uh, just he was just kind of, he looked kind of bored. And I remember thinking, how could he be bored in this amazing place? And then I looked back again and he had his cell phone up just doing a pano picture of the entire facility all the way around. And I realized he wasn't bored. He was, you know, amazed by the place we were in. And it was a cool place. And and doing it in city is is going to be uh, pretty amazing as well. So it's a lot of fun. I really yeah, it's great. It sounds like it's a, a great pairing of resources between your knowledge and everything you bring to the table and then SAE's power to to bring people to the table and uh, contribute with facilities and uh, ven within venues. And, and that might be a good way for a lot of people to like you're saying, if you don't have that spark, if this doesn't excite you, then the odds of you having the information and the knowledge required to reconstruct one of these things fully by yourself is is low like you have to be excited about it you have to dive into it and probably one of the best first places to go do that is to go take your class see what's out there see some of this stuff happen if it triggers something in you and you want to learn more do it if you don't then figure out the contingency plan which is uh at least know enough to be able to quarterback it and bring somebody else on on board yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you literally just bookmarked my class. One of the first slides is here's, here's accident reconstruction. Here's all these overlapping specialties like human factors. You know, how much overlap do you want to have in your field? That's one of the first slides. One of the last slides is if you like this, here are some other places you can go to learn more about it. So, you know, that kind of gives people you know, time to think about what they want to do with it, you know, and some I'm sure dive right in. Some probably are like, hey, I nah, I'm, I'm going to, you know, <laughs> I'm going to call someone else when these come up and, and both are fine. But, you know, it's just it's I'm a big fan of thinking ahead. Decide before you get that call asking you know, where someone asks you what this stuff is. Decide before you get the call how you're going to handle it. Are you going to take it on yourself, take on some of it and hand it off? You know, please don't say, oh, I don't know anything about that stuff. No, we're all smart. We can learn about this. So it's well worth learning something about it. Yeah, I think in one of the things, if you talk to reconstructionists, uh, the ubiquitous concern is that we're going to be dinosaurs. And in speaking with you, I think it's pretty clear. No, you, you absolutely do have to learn about ADAS and autonomous vehicles, but you don't have to be the expert. There's two distinct paths. Path, it, the third path, doesn't exist. You can't not know anything, not an option right. anymore. Yeah. But the, the two paths that do exist, if you want to stay in this industry are learn enough about it so you can quarterback it or be that person yourself. And you have to pick one of those paths if you want to hang with recon in 2030. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, an extreme, extreme example, I got a call 
just a couple of years ago, not 15 years ago, just maybe two or three years ago from a client who said, hey, Alan, I've, I've hired this reconstruction expert in another state. He can handle the crash, but he can't do the truck download. He doesn't do truck downloads at all. Can you come do it? And I said, I can. Here are some less expensive options. But here's a thought to consider. If your reconstruction expert won't touch truck downloads at all and doesn't have a way to get it done for you, you probably shouldn't use that expert. You probably shouldn't use them at all, you know, because, it, you know, there's some truck downloads, uh, you know, a Mac and Volvo download I can't do. Right. But I can tell my client, I'll coordinate it for you. I'll get it done. Here's the other party I use and here's why. Right. So I take care of it all. But yeah, to tell a client, oh, I, I don't I don't do that. No, this is part of our field. We need to just like truck downloads. We need to have a way of managing this. Right. Yeah, exactly. It shows a lack of uh, awareness of the community and involvement with the community. I, I'm with you. I know my boundaries. There's a bunch of stuff I don't know how to do, but I think that it's important. It's part of our job, like I've said earlier, as a recon to me, is helping a client select the appropriate experts for that job. Yeah, and thankfully, most people in our field feel the same way. Hey, you know what? That's not in my specialty but I know someone who can do it. I'll help you set that up. You know, that's, that's the right answer. Yeah. And, and that's where the majority of my work comes from. Uh, you know, I'm a motorcycle expert. That's all I do now for reconstruction work. And a lot of the times people understand, Hey, that's a little bit over my head. Uh, give Lou a call. And so I appreciate it. And then I do the same thing with a bunch of other things, including heavy truck downloads. You know, I can do like if, it, if the truck is not annihilated, I'll, I'll do the, the DLC Detroit diesels and the Cummins. Those are, those are pretty easy. I learned from Jeremy and, uh, you know, that guy's, I'll take his intelligence by the way. Also, if, if, if that's up there for availability with his knowledge. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> so, and it's, you were saying like, we're going to be trading our tape measure for a, a laptop kind of like downloading things, understanding the software, that's going to be more important than going out there and measuring a tire mark or something like that. And then we kind of talked about the omnipresence of, of data, CDR, vehicle control history, whatever the heck is going on in those dash cams that we might eventually get. Um, and then Tesla has the vehicle data report that's either out or coming out, which you'll be able to, to get. It, it, what does recon look like in a decade? Is it primarily interpreting electric data, electronic data and video in less boots, fewer boots on the ground? Um, yeah. And I, I'd say actually that describes the majority of my work today. Um, I actually like crashes. I can reconstruct without seeing the vehicles or the site at all because that means I have really good quality evidence, right? <clears throat> um, so yeah, I do that quite a bit now. And what happens with that is we have to interpret all this data. So take Tesla log data. It's not made for us. It's not made for our use. Um, it will tell us things like um, adaptive cruise speed is set at 82 miles an hour. Well, wait, this is a neighborhood street. It can't be at 82. Was he trying to do 80? Well, no, he wasn't. That's just the last set speed it had and it you know, propagates through the data, right? So there's a lot of things like that in electronic data. We have to be able to pick out, you know, that, that whoever coded that report and the data behind it isn't doing what we're doing. They don't really care what we do. So we've got to pick out what matters and what's relevant and be able to weed out the things that aren't relevant and explain why they're not relevant. No, this driver was not trying to do 82 miles an hour on a neighborhood street. That's just the last data point that was held in the log. 
So, but um, yeah, no, I, I actually do that a lot. I mean, between, uh, you know, dash, tam, dash cams, telemetry, and EDR data, we can get a really good picture of what happens in a crash now, uh, you know, in addition to everything we normally do with the vehicles in the roadway. And, and I think that's great. There's a lot we can do there. Yeah. And it's all evolving so quickly. Kind of like we talked about, there's no, there's no current textbook for this. And if there was, you'd have to rewrite it every single week. So yes. uh, this is going to be something that we all have to keep our finger on the pulse of and keep your head up there and maybe take your class every couple of years, find a class, uh, you know, form relationships with people who are keeping uh, apprised of the situation and, you know, ask them what's going on in a specific case. Uh, there's just a lot there. Um, and, and so we have Rex coming up, obviously, in a couple months, and you, got, you have a presentation there. So hopefully you'll be informing 1,200 people about where we're at and what they should do. Um, I kind of just powered right through. It looked like you wanted to say something, so I'll give you that opportunity. But then I'd love to hear about uh, Rex and your presentation there. Oh, yeah. So I was just thinking about, you know, how to learn things, how to use continuing education to stay up in our field. And I was thinking early in my career, I thought that reconstruction conferences were just to learn something and stop. OK, I'll take an EDR, I'll take a, a CDR conference uh, presentation and, and then I'm good. That's all I need to know. What I didn't realize is that most of the people doing presentations, they're progressing their knowledge. They're advancing what they know and what they share. So it's really a way you know, if you're early in the field, it's a way to learn what's out there. For most of us, it's a way to stay up with what's changing and what's new, right? And so that's the real value of a conference is, um, you know, don't go take a five-day class necessarily just to learn what's new. Come to, the, come to these conferences and learn the bits and pieces that are new, right? And so that's one of the real one of the real strengths of it to me. And that way also, I mean, that's how you and I met was I think at the Rex conference or maybe one before that, that's how you get to know people and who's good in your field that you want to go to for different things, right? That's one way you find them. Yeah, they've been invaluable in my uh, career. Like you said, forming relationships, uh, it, it just unintentionally, you, you find people that you get along with really well and you have overlapping interests, but not necessarily the same skill set. And when you put the two skill sets together, you can accomplish things that otherwise wouldn't have been accomplished. And then, like you said, you get that exposure. It's such a crazy community in that there is so much you have to know and so much to be aware of. And it's really difficult to do that without getting out there, talking to people, going to conferences, being part of a forum, and then at least you get the exposure. You're not going to learn autonomous vehicle reconstruction by listening to Alan Moore for two hours, but you'll know what you need to know. And you can start getting out there and exploring it and figuring out if it's something that interests you. And that is uh, that is huge. And you can see the, the people that don't go out and attend conferences and become part of the community, you can see gaps in their skill set that are not necessarily there for people that are staying in touch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one way to think of my presentation at Rex is I want to give people a toolbox, not a physical toolbox, but a kind of an intellectual toolbox. Here's what's out there and here's what you can do with it. So if you buy a bunch of tools, you may never use every tool, but you know you've got a full set of metric sockets. If you need a 17 or a 12 millimeter socket, you've got it in there, right? My goal in speaking at conferences is to give people a toolbox. So when they hear 
lane departure warning or lane keep assist or why does everybody turn this feature off in their cars? Well, it's because it's really annoying, a certain feature. Um, I want people to know what those are. So when they hear it later, they're like, oh, wait, 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 hang on. No, I heard about that. Let me go back and look at the notes. Let me go back and look at the PDF when he talked about this. So people kind of know what's out there. They may not know every piece of it or how to use all of it, but at least they'll know what's out there. And I think that's important. Yeah, I totally agree. Get that first exposure. Um, so how do people stay in touch with you? Where do the, how can, how can we, how can we continually monitor what you're thinking about? So we know what we should be thinking about. How do people find you? Um, so, you know, email is the best way. Um, and then, uh, conference presentations. And then I try to, um, you know, the INCR news group or user group is obviously huge. I try and stay on that, but I go in and out of it, uh, especially now because I'm traveling quite a bit. I'll disappear from it for a while and then I'll, but usually I try and check it whenever there's something ADAS related. I, uh, you know, try and jump in there and get on it because that's a good way to, um, kind of share ideas and share awareness. I totally agree. That's been a huge asset in my career, just in that you have access to people like you if you're checking anyway and you can just post up and say hey i have this question this is the case i'm working well, who knows what you know about a paper or about a methodology or about who to contact so for those that aren't a part of that i think you have to be nominated but feel free to reach out to to me and uh, i'd be happy to nominate you if appropriate Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The one unfortunate thing about that, though, this happened uh, just about a month ago. Someone had emailed me about a Tesla case they were working on. They needed help on it. And I, I don't remember the details, but it was a fascinating case. The log data had some really good stuff on it. And he sent it to me as I was heading off to travel somewhere. I thought, OK, I'm going to get to this when I get back. Well, I came back and, you know, everything happened at once. Six months later, I'm like, I never got back to you on that, did I? Oh, and, yeah. And the case, whatever it was, the case ended, it was over. There was nothing more to be done. And it was a really cool example of, of I, don't, I forget what now. So that's the unfortunate thing is it's not always the most efficient because, you know, our time draws us elsewhere, right? So uh, that's kind of the downside to it. I tell Sam here sometimes when I come in, like if I responded to every email and I try, but if I responded to every email in my inbox, I would never do my job and yeah, my family never would have no money. Done. Well, thanks so much, uh, Alan. I really appreciate you spending a couple hours to talk about this stuff. I think it's really important for people to hear about. It's like, listen, folks, there's no textbook for it. So keep up with people like Alan, take classes and figure out what your tolerance for learning all of this stuff is. Absolutely. Good. Well, thank you for putting this together. I enjoyed it. I'll be curious to see where it goes. Cool. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Alan. All right. Thanks, Lou. Take care. Hey everyone, one more thing before you get back to business, and that is my weekly bite-sized email to the point. Would you like to get an email from me every Friday discussing a single tool, paper, method, or update in the community? Past topics have covered Toyota's vehicle control history, including a coverage chart, ADAS, that's Advanced Driver Assistance Systems, Tesla vehicle data reports, free video analysis tools, and handheld scanners. If that sounds enjoyable and useful, head to lightpointdata.com slash to the point to get the very next one.